0: the night at Exodus 3:16 to 4:17. And you will remember that we have been in that section of Exodus where we are looking at the calling of Moses. This is now the third installment of God's dealings with Moses and calling him to be the old covenant mediator and redeemer. And we left off last Lord's Day evening at Exodus 3:15 and we're going to pick up in verse 16 and we're going to read down to chapter 4 verse 17. And I know you're going to find it helpful as usual to have your copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me. Now, as the Lord is calling Moses, he has revealed himself to Moses. That was the most important thing we saw about the call of Moses, was God's revelation of himself to Moses at the burning bush. Moses is still at the burning bush. And now in Exodus 3:16, we read, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you, and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you... You shall not go go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me, nor listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. He said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said, Is they are not Aaron, your brother, the Levite. I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And taking your hand, the staff with which you shall do the signs. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of God endures forever. Francis Schaefer, in a short essay that he wrote called No Little Persons, No Little Places, reflected on the difficulty he had in coming to terms with the fact that God would use someone like him. Uh, Schaeffer didn't think highly of himself, even though God would go on to give him a very fruitful ministry, as you all know. And in that little essay that's now been published into a book, No Little Persons, No Little Places, Schaefer reflects on the calling of Moses and what God is doing in Moses' life. And he, he hones in especially on Moses' staff, his rod, and what the symbolism of that rod meant in light of what God was saying to Moses. Listen to this. Schaefer says, Consider the mighty ways in which God used a dead stick of wood God so used a stick of wood can be a banner cry for each of us. Though we are limited and weak in talent, physical energy, psychological strength, we are not less than a stick of wood. But as the rod of Moses had to become the rod of God, so that which is me must become the me of God. Then I can become useful in God's hands. The scripture emphasizes that much more can come from little. If the little is truly consecrated to God, isn't that interesting? That is one of, the, one of the meanings of the rod of Moses. Now, you will know that in Exodus 4.20, uh, that, that Moses' rod is transformed and given a new name, and it is called the rod of God. And that's the point. Moses is going to become the man of God. God has been working on Moses. He's been working in Moses' life. We've seen the lessons that he's learned in the wilderness. We have most recently seen how God has revealed himself to Moses and uh, that he is the great I am, that he is the eternal, transcendent, self-sufficient, all-powerful, and yet imminent God who is coming to visit and redeem his people. And he has revealed himself in a very powerful way to Moses at the bush. And now, as the Lord is continuing to equip Moses for the calling to which he's called him, he is going to do several things. We're going to see this evening three things. First, we're going to see the assuredness of the word of God, the assuredness of the word of God, the authentication of the signs of God, and the inadmissibility of the objection of Moses. The assuredness of the word of God, the authentication of the signs of God and the inadmissibility of the objection of Moses. Well, notice the Lord now tells Moses what to do. And there in verse 16, he says, go. He has prepared Moses. He has revealed himself to Moses. There is a sense where Moses ought to be ready to go. The Lord says, go. Go back to your people. Go back to the Israelites. And tell them what has been done to you in Egypt, and that I promise, notice verse 17, that I promise that I will bring you up out of the afflictions of the Egyptians of Egypt from the, and to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. Now, very interesting, the Lord is both at one and the same time promising what he's going to do, And he's also reflecting on the fact that he has determined all things. And he is also putting his words into Moses' mouth. It's really remarkable. God is promising to do what he said he would do through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's remembering his promise. He is making good on that pledge, as we heard this morning. God is always doing that, as he promised to Abraham he's going to do for his people. He's going to bring them into the land he promised them. He's going to fulfill his covenant mercy to them. He is also letting Moses know that he knows all things because he has determined all things. He has predetermined all things. Now, there was a um, theological heresy a number of years ago called open theism that said God knows all the possible choices and he, he knows all the possible outcomes. Okay, if anybody tries to slide that under your door, stop them. Because that's not biblical. God knows what he has determined to do, and he will do according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can say to him, what are you doing? Amen. He tells Moses, they are going. To listen to you. Notice verse 18, 318 becomes a very important point. The assuredness of God's word. Notice this. They are going to listen to your voice, he says. And then notice, he tells them, he tells him that the elders are going to go with him to the king of Egypt. And they're going to relay this message. Let us go meet with the Lord. Three days journey. He knows That Pharaoh is going to harden his heart because he has determined that Pharaoh would harden his heart. He knows what Pharaoh is like in the condition he's in at present, too. And then he says, I'm going to do what I have to do by stretching out my hand and striking the Egyptians so that you are going to go out. Notice, he says in verse 21, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The Lord has told Moses the end from the beginning. He's told him, this is what's going to happen, which is really marvelous. Now, he's done the same for us when we read Scripture and we know everything that's yet to happen. We know what he's done in Christ, and we also know that Christ is coming back. We know all that the New Testament teaches about what God is going to do in the consummation. We are called to take him at his word and believe that. Um, That can be a great challenge to us. You know, Peter will talk about this in 2 Peter, where he talks about scoffers, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the creation of the world, all things continue as they were. And and that can be a detriment to the faith of believers. We are called to take God at his word because God has told us the end from the beginning. He's told us the outcome, and it's guaranteed, and it's immovable, and it is unchangeable. Nothing will stop God from fulfilling what he has said he is going to do, even when it involves obstacles like an obstinate people— and an obstinate and oppressive ruler. Um, The Lord will fulfill his plans. And so much so, the expectation, notice verse 22, that the assuredness is such that the Lord says, you are not going to go out empty, but each woman is going to ask her Egyptian neighbor for silver and gold, and you're going to receive that from them and put them on your children. Now, what is the point of that? Well, God is determining... and and is letting Moses know that he's predetermined his own victory over Pharaoh. You see, ultimately, it was not Moses' victory over Pharaoh. It was the Lord's battle, and it was the Lord's victory. And you know this in the ancient Near East, when a king went out to battle and he came back with spoils, he came back because he had defeated the enemy. Here, the victory is promised to be so decisive That not a great king is going to come back with spoil. Not even mighty warriors are going to come back with great spoil. But the women of Israel are going to ask their neighbors, and they're going to readily give it to them. Isn't that awesome? It's not demeaning to women. It's saying the battle is the Lord's. And that you're going to know that everything I'm telling you is going to happen. And we know the rest of the story. Everything happens exactly how the Lord said it was going to happen down to the minutest details. We know that Israel will plunder the Egyptians. We know that that silver and gold will be important to them in the building of the tabernacle, in the wilderness, that God will even use those things that they receive from the Egyptians. And and what we see in all of this is that God has a plan for his people, and God is working that plan out perfectly down to every little detail. Now, I've already noted that this is also teaching us the assuredness of the Word of God, that Moses is not being called by God to make up a message. Isn't that interesting? God is putting his words in Moses' mouth, and that is the very epicenter of the prophetic ministry in Scripture. The role of the prophet was not to speak his own words. The role of the prophet, especially in the Old Testament, and then the apostles and the prophets in the New— was to speak what God immediately or immediately revealed to them, and to only speak what God gave them. Isn't that interesting? We live in a day when there are all kinds of gurus in the church that come up with sophisticated messages, and they, they I don't even know how they come up with some of the stuff they come up with. I mean, cleverness is not a fruit of the Spirit, y'all. But some of these guys are really clever, Moses is not being called to be clever. God's not actually calling Moses to do anything except to believe what he's saying and in faithfulness respond obediently to it, eagerly respond obediently to it. And it's going to be God's word through Moses to Israel, to the Egyptians, to the elders of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and then ultimately through the women to their Egyptian neighbors, The Lord is orchestrating everything, and there is an assuredness to his word now. That means that we are called to have the greatest confidence in the assuredness of God's word in scripture. We live in a day when multitudes question God's word. I was reflecting this week on the first attack of Satan, and isn't it interesting that Satan trades in ambiguity. Did God really say? Especially when that pertains to matters of salvation, life, and godliness, and holiness. Did God really say Christ is the only way? Did God really say God will judge the wicked who live in this sexual sin unrepentantly? Did God really say this? And we need to be people who are assured That God's word is certain, that it is immovable, and that every single syllable breathed out by God is perfect, and God is going to do according to his word. That is the essence of the Christian faith. Now, there is also, though, authenticating signs. Notice there, secondly, that Moses doesn't really hear what the Lord says, does he? Notice verse 1, then Moses answered, but behold... They will not believe me, nor listen to my voice. Now, remember, I've pointed this out. Go back to verse 18. God said explicitly, they will listen to your voice. And Moses says, Lord, they won't listen to my voice. But the Lord just said, they will listen to your voice. And Moses is not taking God at his word. Moses is thinking about how he's perceived. He's thinking about his past. He's thinking about the scorn that he received for killing the Egyptian when he was trying to deliver his fellow countrymen. And and he is thinking, there's no way they're going to believe me. There's no way they're going to believe I had a private conversation with God in the wilderness 40 years after I left Egypt. They're not going to believe that, that this happened. And it's interesting The Lord entertains Moses' sinful weakness at this point. I've always thought it says so much about the Lord that he deals so gently with us in our sinful foolishness and weakness. Um, When we're not obedient, he doesn't just destroy us. Um, No, he, he deals with us in such a way as to correct us, discipline us, strengthen us in faith motivate us unto holiness but he deals so kindly isn't that interesting the infinite god looks at moses and he says to him what is that in your hand and he says a staff he said throw it on the ground he threw it on the ground it became a serpent he said now put out your hand and catch it by the tail he put out his hand he caught it by the tail and it became a staff in his hand now there are going to be three miracles that god does here to authenticate the word that he has just spoken to Moses. There is going to be the rod becoming the serpent. There's going to become Moses' hand becoming leprous and then being healed. And then there's going to be the water turned to blood on the ground. Now, we have already looked at the first of that sign in what Schaefer says when he says that we are the rod. And that is true. There's nothing about the rod. In itself, in fact, it's likely that this was Moses' shepherd's staff that he carried through the wilderness for 40 years, and uh, several theologians and commentators have made the point that by 40 years, we don't know how long he had the staff, but it would have been really dry. (laughs) There was nothing in this staff other than just dry, barren wood. And yet the Lord says, throw it on the ground, and he becomes a serpent, and then he tells us, Moses to pick it up by the tail, and he does, and it becomes a staff again. Now, there are a number of things going on here. You will know this from later in Exodus, that the magicians in Egypt were able to do these acts of sorcery, and God is very simply teaching Moses, I have all power. I am more powerful than the gods of Egypt. I am more powerful than anything you might fear. And I want you to know my power, and I want my people to know my power. Um, That rod is going to become the symbol of power, isn't it? Because it's that rod that Moses is ultimately going to take and strike the Egyptians with the plagues. It's that same rod he's going to take and strike the waters of the Red Sea when God parts the Red Sea. And it's that same rod that the Lord is going to be struck with when he stands on the rock and Moses strikes the Lord, as it were, with the rod of judgment, and the waters flow out. It's the same rod. It's going to demonstrate all of God's power. And the point is simple. God is calling Moses not to be a man of power. God is calling Moses to know that he is a God of power. You know, we we so easily forget this. We think, if I just had enough, I do this with ministry. If we just had enough resources, if we just had enough of this and that. But ultimately, we are saying, if we were just powerful enough, Isn't that the point of Gideon's army when he has all those soldiers and God keeps cutting it back and cutting it back and cutting it back until there are just 300 lapping water like dogs. And God says, these are the ones I'm going to gain the victory over. And this is a foolish means, isn't it, of deliverance. A stick of wood is a foolish means of deliverance, you know. I would be remiss if I didn't tell you. I think the rod is in one sense a picture of the cross, because at the cross, which is a very foolish means of deliverance, God exhibits all of his saving power. It's where the judgment of God falls. It's where the salvation of God comes. There is nothing more foolish than you being saved through a naked Savior nailed to the tree as a criminal. That is foolishness in the sight of the world, and yet it is the power of God unto salvation. The rod here is depicting the power of God. The rod is also instructive for Israel. Listen to this. Phil Riken says it would help convince the Israelites that God had spoken to Moses. It would help persuade them that God could lead them out of Egypt. The snake was a symbol of Egyptian power, for the Egyptians worshipped the serpent as a source of wisdom and healing. You'll remember that Pharaoh had a serpent, on his his crown. It was a symbol of the Egyptians. And, Reichen says, in doing so, ultimately, the Egyptians were worshipping that old serpent, the devil. But by changing a stick into a serpent and back again, God demonstrated his authority over the gods of Egypt and over Satan himself. Isn't that awesome? God is showing Moses, you are going to have power over the evil one because I have power over the evil one. By the way, Some of you probably know you don't pick up a venomous serpent by the tail. Moses is going to have to trust God to exhibit this, and he does trust the Lord. This first sign bolsters Moses' faith in what God has said. Well, then there is the second sign, the sign of leprosy. What is the point of the leprous hand of Moses? Well, very simply, I think the sign is that if God can use a stick. He can use the hand of the one holding the stick. That is probably the the basis of this sign. He is telling Moses, I made your hand, the hand with which you hold that stick. I have power to make it leprous. I have power to heal it. And he is again teaching Moses about his power over all things. Now, in Egypt, leprosy was a very... Uh, prevalent disease, and as you know from the gospel records, it was one that there was no healing or curing of. And yet God is going to show him, I can do what no one else can do. I can do it with your own hand, and I can do it for my people, and I can do it against this ungodly nation. And in a sense, God is saying, I am going to heal my people of their bondage and their slavery to sin and to Satan Through your hand, I'm going to deliver them. It's really a beautiful, beautiful sign by the Lord. Well, there is one final sign, and you know that. It is the water turned to blood on the dry ground. Now, this is going to be the first plague. This is going to be a warning to Pharaoh that what is going to happen to the Egyptians, is in keeping with what Pharaoh did to the baby boys in the Nile when he slaughtered all the little boys, that, that same river on which Moses was protected and those baby boys were drowned. And it is a sign of what God is going to do in shedding the blood of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. And yet it is going to be a sign for Israel that God is coming in judgment. Water to blood is not a blessing. Water to blood is a judgment that God is sending Moses to bring judgment on the enemies of the church. Now, very interesting, this is going to be the first miraculous sign that Moses does. And you know this, the first miracle Jesus does is water to wine. There is that contrast. Jesus is a greater Moses, and there is a contrast between those signs. Moses is coming with judgment. Jesus is coming with blessing, We are meant to see that contrast in redemptive history. And yet, the sign is both for Moses and it's for Israel. It's more for Israel than it is for Moses, but God is giving all these signs because he is condescending to bear with Moses' weakness, to equip Moses to know that his word is certain and that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. Now, I want us to consider, finally the inadmissibility of the objection of Moses. You would think at this point Moses would have gotten it. Uh, Moses has objected throughout God's dealings with him. You'll remember he's, his first objection was, who am I? And then he objects, they're not going to listen to me. And now he is going to raise a, another objection, and he is basically going to say, Lord, I am ineffective. Now, keep in mind everything I've just said. The whole point of God's dealings with Moses is to say you are ineffective, but I am effective. I am not calling you because you have this wonderful gift set and ability, because you are better than others. You are ineffective. I am effective. I will make you effective through my effectiveness. And as Eric Alexander says here, he says, God is able to take the weakest, poorest, most inadequate child of his and make him into a man of flaming fire. Isn't that wonderful? God is able to take the weakest, poorest, most inadequate child of his and make him into a man or woman of a flame of fire. That's a really great word for us, isn't it? Now, Moses doesn't get it. And notice Moses is going to object here. And Moses says to the Lord in verse 10, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow or heavy of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said, who has made man's mouth, who makes him mute, deaf, seeing blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go. I will be with your mouth. I'll teach you what to speak. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Now, Phil Ryken has a sermon on this portion of our passage, and the title of that sermon is, Here I Am, Send Someone Else. <laughs> um, you see the contrast, don't you, between Moses and Isaiah. Isaiah knew his own weaknesses. Isaiah readily confessed them. He said, when he saw that vision of God uh, sitting on the throne and the train of his temple filling that, that heavenly throne room, and, and he was undone, and he said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He was saying, I am unworthy. But then when the Lord says, who's going to go? He says, here am I. Send me. Moses says, send somebody else. And, you know, while we laugh, I think sometimes in the way that we look at ministry opportunities, we are just like Moses. We look at someone in front of us or we look at some ministry need in front of us. And we say, oh, I can't do that. And, and what, we, what we end up doing in those circumstances so often is wallowing in sort of sinful self-pity over what we perceive to be a lack of ability within us instead of saying, I don't have it within me, but the Lord has it, and if he calls me to this, he will enable me to do this. That is really the lesson Moses needs to learn so desperately, and we need to learn. Um, You know, while Moses may have been the first prophet to protest a lack of eloquence, he was by no means the last. Remember, Isaiah had said that. Jeremiah had said in Jeremiah 1.6, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. The Lord said, don't be afraid of their faces. Now, we don't know whether Moses was... Um, inarticulate. We don't know if he had a speech impediment. We don't know if he had a cognitive issue with putting together verbal concepts. There was something going on that made him unsure of himself. And yet the Lord has already assured him that that is not a legitimate objection. Who made man's mouth? You know, I think back, I'll tell you a personal story. When I was first converted. I had fried my brain so much that I couldn't remember what day of the week it was. And I so desperately wanted to memorize God's word. And no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't memorize scripture. I was 24 years old, and I got on my face one day in my bedroom, and I pleaded with the Lord to restore my memory So I can meditate on his word and it was like something supernatural happened every time I read the Bible I was memorizing chapters almost like osmosis Because the Lord is able To give us what we don't have in ourselves. The Lord is able to do for you what you can't do for yourself And we have to be reminded of that and we have to go to him and we have to trust him for it And that doesn't mean everybody's called to be a preacher It doesn't mean everybody's called to be a teacher. We all serve in a variety of capacities. But God wants to turn us into obedient and eager servants who love to answer his call and to go where he wants to send us and to use us in the way he wants to use us. I mean, how often do we ever say, Lord, how do you want to use me? Not how do I want to be used? How do you want to use me? Here God is telling Moses in a way he's, almost never done in the rest of human history. Here's exactly how I want to use you. And Moses is struggling, and he's objecting. And you notice the patience of the Lord wears thin. Notice verse 14, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And you know the rest. He gets Aaron, and he couples Aaron with Moses, and he says, now you have no excuse. Um, You can't raise another objection to me. And we know from subsequent chapters that Moses is going to go. And he's going to do exactly what God said to him. And here's what's remarkable. Don't miss this. The Moses that we see after this is like a different Moses. Isn't that interesting? He goes and stands before the most powerful man in the world that can destroy him. And he is absolutely fearless. He does exactly what God says. And everything works out exactly as God said it would. You know, when Jesus sends the disciples out and he says, don't worry, when you stand before kings and authorities, don't worry what you're going to say and that hour will be given to you. It's the same principle. You know, we often fear man so much that we truncate and paralyze our own usefulness in the kingdom. There's not one person on this planet you have to fear other than God. Not one not the most ruthless, not the most hardened, not the one that freaks you out when you're in their presence. Not one person you have to fear because at the end of the day, God has made your mouth. God owns all things. God gives all men life and breath and all things. And here's the glorious thing. And if we read this in light of our union with Christ, you know, Christ has done what Moses could never do. And he has done everything that God said he would do, everything that he said he would do as God in the flesh. He has already accomplished redemption. We are savingly united to him. If you're in Christ, you are savingly united to the Christ who died for you and rose again. And that means when he calls you into his service, you already are united to everything that you need in him. Paul will say this. I'll leave you with this. In 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But of God the Father you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom, that is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. As it is written, let him who's bo- who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. Everything that we need is in Christ. When we're tired, when we're weak, when we're frustrated, when we're annoyed, y'all get annoyed real easily. When we're annoyed, When we are just worn thin, the Lord supplies grace to enable us to serve him obediently and eagerly in the areas he calls us to serve him in. I want to encourage you tonight from this example of Moses and from what we know in the rest of the scriptures that you all would ask the Lord to use you in the way that he wants to use you with the people he wants to use you with supplying to you from all of his fullness in your lack and your ineffectiveness. And as Francis Schaeffer said, consider the mighty ways in which God used a dead stick of wood so that we might say, instead of the rod, me, I must become the me of God. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you again for this precious lesson from your dealings with your servant Moses. We thank you for recording these words in scripture. We thank you that they are true. We so desperately need them. We do pray that, Lord, you would use us, each one of us gathered here to worship you in the way that you want to use us, that we would not look at our own lack and deficiency, our own... um, Acknowledged ineffectiveness and cower from the calling to which you call us. We pray that instead, Lord, you would make clear to us how you want to use us. As those whom you have united to your son, we pray that you would remind us again tonight that everything that we need is in Christ. Lord Jesus, would you supply out of your own fullness for us? And would you use us in the ways that you see fit to use us? Would you remind us that though we are but a dead piece of wood in ourselves, yet your mighty power, your resurrection power is at work in us? We pray, our God, that you would stir us up by way of reminder tonight from these truths. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.